Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. As we head into Northern Hemisphere winter, the spotlight is on energy markets. Europe is facing a worsening energy crisis ahead of winter. Gas prices have reached record highs and supplies are running low across the block. Governments are having to act to ensure a power shortage doesn't hurt their economic recovery. Since January, natural gas prices have soared by more than 170%. Is this a European slash UK energy security problem and how long can it continue? In this episode, we're going to take a look at the bottlenecks in Europe's power market, the outlook for energy prices globally and discuss energy transition as we continue to march towards a low carbon future. I'm Alison Savas, Client Portfolio Manager. And joining me today to discuss Europe's energy crunch is Max Shramchenko, Antipodes Sector Head of Infrastructure. It's great to have you on, Max. My pleasure, Alison. Well, the European winter is about to begin, and, and I think it's fair to say that the fact that Europe may face an energy crisis isn't well understood by the market or investors, and, and the continent is not well prepared for it, especially if it's going to be a cold winter. Yeah, well, with current gas storage levels, at 25% below where they should be, I think that's a fair assessment, Alison. So how has Europe found itself in a situation where there may not be enough gas to meet demand? Well, first of all, I think we have to look at it from a global perspective, because if you look, if you look at the situation, there are com- there's a common thread there between what we're seeing in Europe currently and what we've just saw with power shortages in China. And the common thing really is the strength of the post-pandemic economic recovery and activity just recovered much faster than anyone anticipated. And by extension, the demand for energy was much greater than anticipated. And we simply hasn't had enough fuel to meet the demand. Now, if you look at China's power shortage, it's largely been addressed. Uh, The lack of fuel there was pretty much an outcome of domestic policy mismatch and they had these policies around mine safety and provincial energy intensity that were set set a bit too tight. And that really drove the decline in local coal mining and at the time, you know, the demand was ramping up. And finally, a poor season in hydro generation didn't help either. Uh, but the government really wasted no time in directing an increase in coal mining and even proposing to introduce a price cap on coal. And these measures have proven to be quite effective. However, that cannot be said about Europe. So I think to really understand what's happening right now in Europe, we need to think about key uh, energy policies there. First, uh, Europe is a large importer of fossil fuels, with majority of its oil, natural gas and coal coming from overseas. Second. Uh, Unlike many other countries, uh, the power generation sector is fully deregulated, which is similar to what we have here in Australia. Um, So Europe derives about 25% of their annual electricity supply from burning imported gas and coal. These two fuels really perform a mission-critical load-balancing service, which basically means, you know, they fire up during the times of high demand, which typically occurs during the cold days in the winter. So being able to secure enough coal and gas import for the winter is crucial for the security of supply. And that's where the European energy policy is surprisingly vulnerable. An unfortunate consequence of the deregulated electricity market is that the owners of the power plants do not have great visibility into their future generation volume. That happens because they constantly need to beat into the market at a low price and only those that provide electricity at a low price uh, get an order to generate power during the next 24 hour window. 
So if you happen to be a relatively high cost generator like coal or gas, you can never be sure how much fuel you'll actually need to burn in the future. And, and on top of this, you know, Europe's got the world's, you know, strictest decarbonisation targets, which aim to shut down most coal and gas generation by 2030 anyway. Exactly right. So by design, the European power generation sector is dependent on global spot markets. Europe effectively feeds on global energy breadcrumbs, if you like. Because, for instance, if you look at these large LNG export projects or export pipelines, these tend to allocate only about 10 to 15 percent of their volume to spot markets. And that's really what usually ends up in the European gas turbines. So despite their large relative size, they just can't get the same access to fuel as other buyers like Asian buyers who can offer 20 year volume commitments. Um, it's really the system that works great um, at the time of the abundance of seaborne energy globally. You know, you can get very competitive fuel and by extension, the power prices can be very competitive. But it's a very difficult operating environment when global fuel supply is tight. Um, I recall the time when I was picking up uh, the courage of the European power sector in 2016, the energy prices were collapsing and they drove the power prices in Europe down to 20 euros per megawatt hour, which was pretty much the level that sent the entire power sector broke. And since then, uh, we've really seen a chronic underinvestment in the upstream. And finally, when COVID hit, the whole upstream sector globally went into a survival mode. And as we now know, it was the worst time to do that as the demand really bounced back strongly. Mm. And the marginal buyers of fuel, such as European power generators, have been left scrambling for supply. So, so what are Europe's options to plug this fuel shortage? You know, does Russia hold all the cards? Oh, look, I mean, Gazprom is already supplying around 40% of European gas needs anyway. And if you look at the last 12 months, they've actually been pumping gas to Europe at a relatively high um, end of the historic range. If you look at over the last 10 years, um, you know, the increase in Gazprom's volume that is over and above what they're already sending to Europe is actually being taken out by countries like Turkey and China. So Gazprom is really just selling the incremental capacity to the buyer who's willing to offer better terms. And in doing so, it's actually diversifying its customer base. So, you know, unfortunately for Europe, they really have little choice but to get the gas from the spot market, which is why we've seen European gas prices rise more than 300% year to date to an all time high. And as a result, um, you've really seen the industrial demand rationing there. For example, you know, half of the European nitrogen fertilizer industry is closed down. And the irony is that you know, gas power plants in Europe don't really care what price they pay for gas supply uh, because the cost is passed through to the consumer. So if there is scarcity of spot energy cargoes, they'll pay any price to secure them if the generation demand requires so. And that has a real impact on power prices. The conundrum though is that a lot of other buyers of energy can be price sensitive. And that's why we've seen uh, industrial demand rationing like that example with a fertilizer. And it doesn't really end there with uh, global LNG prices now at an equivalent of $150 a barrel of oil. We're seeing a sizable shift away from gas-based power generation towards burning oil in developing countries around the world in, in regions such as Asia and Latin America. And oil production isn't really increasing despite of the high oil prices. 
This is because debt is forcing producers to exercise some discipline and without a doubt ESG concerns are also weighing on investment decisions. So what we're seeing is that the rally in gas prices is also fueling a rally in oil prices. And this rally in oil prices is stunning to worry policymakers. You know, reading the headlines last week, we we may see China and the US release some oil from their reserves to take you know some of this heat out of the oil price that, that you just referred to. Now, let's talk about how this power shortage gets resolved. Over the longer term, you know, decarbonisation will be the answer. But in the near term, I guess, you know, where to from here? Yeah, Alison, you're right. I mean, decarbonisation is, you know, the long term solution here and an opportunity. But in the meantime, we still think that there will be uh, an inevitable cycle around hydrocarbons um, that is required to deal with a mismatch between today's supply and demand conditions. And we think natural gas will be part of the solution as it produces only half the carbon emissions of uh, thermal coal per unit of electricity output. So we think the gas market will remain relatively tight over the next few years because it takes time for new LNG capacity to ramp up. And we do have visibility of LNG capex going forward. And there isn't really any major new capacity coming until 2024, which is when the big projects out of the US are coming online. So um, while we don't expect current extreme levels of pricing to sustain for long, um, we definitely think that global LNG prices can remain elevated for quite a while. It's a function of energy demand being greater than energy supply and fundamental need for more investment. And, and I think that sums up why Antipodes sees an opportunity for the US gas producers. The US is the world's largest gas market with less than 10% currently exported. And until recently, there's, there's been little incentive for US natural gas producers to invest. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as we've seen, the US gas prices um, have been pretty weak over the last several years and upstream company balance sheets have been pretty weak as a result as well. Uh, but right now, um, you know, the US gas price is at about $5 per MMBTU unit, you know, the highest level since the spike we had in 2014. And given the price arbitrage between the US $5 a unit and Europeans $30 a unit, um, there's really an incentive there to invest in production and export capacity given the strong demand for gas you know, as a, as, as a transition fuel going forward. So our analysis um, suggests that we're going to see US LNG export capacity increase from 60 million tonnes per annum currently to about 120 million tonnes by 2025. That difference in gas prices between the US and Europe is really remarkable. And, and it does put into context the opportunity for the US gas producers, given the outlook that you've just painted for gas demand globally. Now, Max, can we turn to our portfolio? Because I know our listeners really enjoy hearing how we position for our broader views. We have around 8% exposure to traditional energy in the global portfolios. And it has a, you know, that's with a bias towards companies that will benefit from an increase in demand for gas as we transition towards renewables. So, you know, we've taken our exposure via producers and services companies, but, but let's start with the gas producers. Um, you know, we own Katera, which is the second largest gas-focused independent producer, you know, in the US. C can you take us through that investment? Yeah, sure. So Katera has got about 5% of the US gas market with operations in the prolific Marcellus and Permian basins, um, and its production is extremely low cost at below $2 a unit. 
Unlike many of its peers, Katera also has a very strong balance sheet, and that's important for a number of reasons. Uh, the most obvious one being that they're built to withstand downturns. Um, but what also many investors are overlooking with the company is um, the commodity companies regularly hedge their commodity price. Um, that is, they lock the selling price in advance rather than leaving themselves open to the vagaries of the spot market. And a general rule of thumb there is really as the weaker the company's balance sheet, the more aggressive they need to be on hedging in order to protect the cash flows. And the point is, um, a high commodity price doesn't necessarily mean companies' cash flows are going to go up. But because of Katera's strong balance sheet, it was actually able to make a decision not to hedge the US gas prices at the time when they were low over the past several years. So now uh, it is actually one of the few producers that will get the benefit of the move in the spot gas price from less than $3 a unit to close to $5 recently. And it's a very shareholder friendly company as well. Um, it's committed to paying out at least 50% of its free cash flows to shareholders. So we really think Katera is a sharp contrast to the rest of the sector, which has a lot of debt and weak shareholder return programs. And with you know, unhedged production going into 2022, we think the company's value at about five times their free cash flow based on the 2022 forward curve. Mm. And and this position in Katera is complemented by the portfolio's exposure to Exxon, isn't it? Um, you know, we covered Exxon in a previous podcast episode. Uh, in, in essence, it's, it's another leading US gas producer with an energy mix that's shifting towards more gas. Max, can you give us an overview of Exxon's role in that energy transition? Yeah, so uh, roughly half of Exxon's upstream portfolio is, is natural gas, which is a combination of uh, globally sold LNG and their domestic-based gas in the US. And looking ahead, the company is actually investing more in uh, LNG export capacity in the US. Now, in terms of Exxon's role in energy transition more holistically, what's less understood by investors in Exxon is their carbon capture and storage business. Um, you know, there will be industries out there uh, that are incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to economically decarbonize. And for those industries, fossil fuels can continue to be used in the existing process. But then the resulting carbon is captured and stored as opposed to being emitted into the atmosphere. Now, Exxon's been largest capture of carbon globally, and we think the company will monetize the value they can add in this space as we move towards a low carbon world. For this, we're paying 10 times free cash flow at spot prices, and the company pays a generous 6% dividend yield. And Max, we also own Technip Energies. Now, this is a different, a different business. It's a services company as opposed to an energy producer like Katera and, and Exxon. Yeah, that's right. So Technip Energies is really an engineering and technology business which designs and manages large energy projects, mostly oil and gas-based projects like uh, large LNG export plants, you know, refineries and chemical plants. The reason we like it is because it's one of the largest players in onshore and offshore liquefaction plants. The company has actually built more than 20% of global operating LNG capacity, which adds up to about 100 million tonnes, which is a staggering number. And increasingly, Technip uh, is the company of choice for oil majors bringing online new LNG capacity. For instance, they've recently been awarded uh, a major Qatar-based expansion. And its leading market position comes following the consolidation in the industry where a number of competitors entered bankruptcy throughout the downturn we saw over the last several years. 
Now, because handling and processing gas is second nature to Technique, it's extremely well positioned to also benefit from growth in all these new markets like hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, like I mentioned with Exxon, and also sustainable chemistry, like chemical recycling of biochemicals and fuels. Today, these markets are only half the size of existing LNG and downstream addressable markets, but they're, go but they're going to grow rapidly. Uh, they're currently growing at around 5 to 15% per annum. And there aren't really many engineering and construction companies that cross all paths of energy transition. So we think Technip is really one of the few legacy energy services companies that has a credible plan to transition to a greener economy. It has a backlog of about 18 billion euros against 6 billion euros in annual revenues. And this backlog is growing at a faster pace than revenues. And at 10 times next year's earnings, we think it's really cheap. Now, a conversation around energy transition isn't complete without delving into decarbonisation. And this topic has really been back in the spotlight recently, given the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. So if we, if we put aside whether or not the major economies are doing enough to address global warming, uh, and, I mean, that discussion could be an entire podcast in itself. The, the reality is, is that a material amount of investment is required to meet current emission goals. Can you put it into context for us? That's right. That's right. Uh, we talk about decarbonisation a lot because uh, it's a long-term growth story. And really, it's a multi-decade policy-led investment cycle around electricity infrastructure. Um, Europe and US have both announced goals to become carbon neutral by 2050. And likewise, Australia has recently pledged to a similar goal. Um, and China has indicated their emissions to peak by 2030 and to become carbon neutral by 2060. On our analysis, to achieve these goals, we could see incremental investment ranging from anywhere of 2% of GDP per annum in case of Europe to somewhere closer to 8% per annum in case of China, and with US probably falling somewhere in between. If you take Europe, it has a very strong desire to, to decarbonize because, as I mentioned before, Europe is a big spender on importing fossil fuels with spend of about 120 billion euros per annum on that. So replacing that bill with locally sourced renewable energy is going to be highly accretive to Europe's GDP. On our numbers, uh, renewable power generation in Europe can grow from being currently 20% of power generation to about 60% by 2030. Uh, and this has big implications for the grid. As renewable generation increases, investment in transmission and distribution is required to increase in order to strengthen the grid. And that investment alone can, can be about 35 billion euros per annum. And on top of that, we'll also need investment in storage because sun doesn't necessarily shine or wind blow at the same time as the ping demand occurs. So we really do need to have an ability to store excess generation from the periods of low demand and be able to use it in the periods of high demand. So as you can see, there's so much investment required and it's not as simple as just adding a solar panel here and there and shifting to EVs. It's really um, an investment super cycle that will last many decades. Well, thanks, Max. And I, I think that's a great place to, to wrap things up. We have around 15% of our portfolio in decarbonisation plays, and that includes the capital providers like Electricity de France and Fortis, which is a transmission company in the US, and materials companies like Norsk Hydro and Tech Resources, and of course the enablers, which are those companies that will facilitate a reduction in emissions, and, and Siemens is a great example here. 
I think what the energy crisis in Europe highlights is that as we head towards decarbonisation, there's going to be steps along the way. This period of energy transition can see a cycle in hydrocarbons, particularly gas as the transition fuel of choice, which is coupled with a great supply story, as well as an investment cycle around decarbonisation. Max, you've given us a lot to think about and highlighted some great investment opportunities. So for more information on Antipodes or our views, please head to our website, antipodespartners.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you can get an alert as soon as our next episode goes live in a few weeks. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.